Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Greg Dattis, who is the author of Pulp Vietnam, War and Gender in Cold War Men's Adventure Magazines. Greg, thanks for being here with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. I am hoping you could start out by talking about how you got interested in looking at uh, men's adventure magazines and a little bit about coming to writing this book. Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's the... Um, the typical, I, I went down a rabbit hole and, and never came out until, until I had a book on the other end. Um, I, I was teaching um, my final semester at uh, U.S. Military Academy at West Point, um, a course on war and gender, and was co-teaching with a great colleague of mine, Jen Keesling. And uh, as it was a course on uh, war and gender in modern America, uh, mostly focused on the 20th and early 21st century. And as we got to the Cold War era, um, I was, was kind of searching during my lesson planning for some images of uh, pop culture, um, military soldiers and, you know, the U.S. Armed Forces in the um, early to mid-1950s. And I came across this um, in January 1953 issue of, of American Manhood. And, and on the cover of this magazine, there's this, you know, bare-chested um, soldier and he's got a rifle in his hand. And you know, he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's got these huge pecs and he's, he's on top of a tank and, he, and he's kind of yelling and, and, and screaming. Um, and at the very top of the cover, it, it, it's, it, it asks the reader, you know, what you should know about sex. And, and then right below that, there's a, a commentary um, on, on Hell's Hill in Korea. And so it was really fascinating to me that, that, you know, here's this image of American soldiers in the Cold War era, and they're, they're clearly focusing on the male body and, and um, you know, um, again, very much kind of looking like an Arnold Schwarzenegger type of um, figure and combining sex and war. And, and I just started kind of down this path of asking how these magazines came to construct this image of masculinity in the Cold War and um, and what they were trying to portray in the Cold War era at this time where masculinity seems to be under assault from um, from just about everywhere, you know, both domestically and, uh, and overseas. And so this really is a work that, that started in the classroom. And, you know, we, we often talk about, um, you know, teaching and research going hand in hand. And, and to me, this is really proof of that, that I, I started asking these questions based on a course I was teaching um, with a close friend of mine. So before we really get into the book itself, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about just what you mean by sort of the, for by pulp, right? What are these men's magazines? Just a little bit, um, not, you don't have to go into huge detail, but the history yeah. of them, you know, just to sort of set up, because it's really fascinating to sort of look at these in the context of other magazines and what was coming right. out at the time, so... 
Yeah, I, th- I think the market really kind of um, the magazine market really starts to explode in the early 1900s. Um, and you start to see kind of these all fiction periodicals. Um, and then as you get into the 1920s and 30s, you have these collections of, of crime stories like Black Mask. And, and then in 1933, you have Esquire. And all this, I think, is building toward um, the Second World War, where a lot of these stories um, or magazines will, will find a market with American soldiers overseas. Obviously, the Esquire, um, known for um, their there's sexually suggested pinup girls, and, and that was kind of part and parcel of what Esquire did. And so by the time you come out of World War II, there, I think, is a, this ready-made market for, for magazine readerships. And, and you start to see these titles that are flooding the market, um, Saga, Stag, Man's Conquest. And um, what they are, I think, are really magazines that are targeting uh, a white working class readership, um, which also happens to be the same um, population that, for the most part that is sent to Vietnam. And so what they are is, is um, targeted to, you know, kind of the working class um, neighborhoods focusing on what they called real life adventures. Um, as one magazine editor said, it was for the, um, you know, the beer and poker set kind of crowd. Um and so when you get to the 1950s, I, I think there's this kind of explosion of, of what are now known as kind of the pulps or men's adventure magazines. And, and they're, they're selling by the millions on a monthly basis. And what I found in my research, which I thought was really interesting, um, is that these magazines are topping the list in the PX, the post-exchange um, sales in Vietnam. So there's, there's a definite um, link between uh working class readers in the 1950s and early 1960s and into the soldiers that are kind of consuming these magazines once they get to Vietnam. Right. And it's really interesting how you sort of set us up with this sort of um, the cold, your first chapter, you know, is titled Macho Pulp and the American Cold War Man. So you sort of set us up with this image that, um, that the pulp magazines put forward about what the American man should and shouldn't be. So can you talk a little bit about sort of what they're setting up for manhood um, during this time? Yeah. What I found in in these magazines is that they're, they're kind of bringing together what I consider to be two strands of masculinity. And and in one strand, you have this heroic warrior um, again, kind of going back to this cover of American manhood, this beefy, muscular, um, heroic warrior that kind of goes out onto the battlefield and, and defeats defeats his enemies. And then the same breath, um, he's also the sexual conqueror. Um, and so in these magazines, women are, are very much re- reduced to sexual objects. They're, they're kind of trophies in a way for uh, a reward, if you will, for um, your valiant deeds on the battlefield. And so I think at a time in the Cold War where many American men after World War II are, are really concerned about their masculinity and the concerns over consumerism and um, the domestication of the American male and um, you know, what suburbia might do to these heroic warriors from World War II. Um, these magazines, I think, are, um, are a way to... Um, to validate that men still matter in a sense. And and what they do is I think link military service to sexual entitlement. 
Um, and I think in the process kind of leave behind a, a very distorted um, vision of what war might be once soldiers get to Vietnam. Right. It's, it's really fascinating. Throughout your book, you have images from these texts and um, one, it, they're all over and I think they're all really interesting, but like the idea on one of your first images in the first chapter has a man um, in the kitchen and he has right. on an apron and it says across right, a castration right, right. of the American male, right? <laughs> right, right, right like right. it's really fascinating to look at just how strongly these texts, these magazines really sort of push this idea of um, what men should or should not be doing and how men should or should not exist in the world. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, or what I found interesting is, is you know, they're, they're selling a, a very, um, I would argue, hyper-masculine um, form of, of masculinity that's tough and, and rebellious and, and absolutely anti-feminine. But I, I think if you read them in a different way, uh, the, these magazines are, are also founded upon really deep anxieties of, of not measuring up and this kind of rapidly changing post-war society. And as you said, you know, that there, there are titles of, of these magazine articles um, that are centered on fears of, of being emasculated by domestication and, and consumerism. And, um, you know, there's, there's this, this article that you mentioned, or um, the mental castration of, of husbands, it, it, it specifically talks about concerns about men being converted into housemaids and that these uh, these frustrated females are, are waging an all-out campaign against their mates. So um, it absolutely is based on, I, I think, a, a pretty big fear of, of what um, the post-war American society is looking like. And, and I get a sense that these magazines are kind of um, being portrayed as, as an antidote for these, um, you know, stifling wives and domestic responsibilities that are part and parcel of, as you mentioned, this, you know, this poor, poor man that's standing in an apron, um, um, you know, helping his wife clean dishes after, um, after dinner. Right. And these ideas, um, you talk about in this first chapter too, a bit about what's happening um, with the Cold War and this move to sort of the communists are big and strong and hardy and the American man needs to work out and become big and become like physically uh, that physical Adonis kind of presence right. in order to survive. That's how we're going to survive communism, right? <laughs> right, Exactly. <laughs> it's um, the only way. <laughs> it's the only way. Right. Um, but yeah, I, th I think there, that, that's the remedy to all of this, right? Is that if you focus on the male body, um, if you follow Charles Atlas's um, uh, prescriptions of, of making sure that you're not half a man, that you're a full man. And, and according to Charles Atlas, that, that women are naturally attracted to strong men, um, that you can solve this fear of, uh, or this, this problem of, of domestication at the same time that you're preparing to deal with a Soviet threat. Um, and so, you know, again, this is an antidote that works here at home, but it also works in terms of um, uh, sustaining the, the national security state in the Cold War era. And, and you also sort of set up in this first chapter and talk about it in more depth. We can talk about it more later. But this idea mm -hmm. that 
women are there for the conquest of men, right? So like within these texts, a a lot is focused on how, you know, this woman is just sort of um, a body or not even a body, right? It is a thing that you can conquest and use as you will. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and even here though, I I think it it must've been incredibly disconcerting for a young teenager um, reading these magazines, um, especially ones that are inexperienced um, um, with relationships um, and sex, to, to kind of get a sense that, yes, they're objects. Um, the, the, the pinups in these magazines are called cheesecake. Um, and so, you know, the, this whole idea that they're, they're not human bodies, but they're, you know, objects to be consumed. Um, and yet at the same time, women are... are incredibly dangerous in these magazines. They're, um, they're toxic vehicles for sexually transmitted diseases. Um, you know, there's magazines talking about, um, the, how, um, these young girl wolf packs are terrorizing cities. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's two very, um, different conceptions of, or I would argue there's multiple conceptions of women in these magazines, but the two I think that are are most prevalent are that women are both desirous and dangerous. And and I think that becomes really disconcerting for young readers. And then also I think sets men up um, for those that go to Vietnam to see uh, Vietnamese women in the same exact light, that they're desirous in one instance and should be conquered because that's what um, these magazines are, are suggesting that um, women, especially local women, are, are rewards for heroic um, performance on the battlefield. But at the same time, they're incredibly dangerous, and we need to be a, we need to be careful of them, if not um, kind of keep them at arm's length. Um, so there's two very different messages going on in these magazines. And the other thing that, you know, you talk about young men, especially inexperienced sexually, um, the mm-hmm. other thing you sort of set up and talk about is the homophobia that um, is sort of appears within cultural context, but how that plays out in the magazines and also how there's a little bit of um, uh, pushback against that by some of the readers. I don't know, pushback is probably not the right word, but can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, when you when you look at uh, Alfred Kinsey's work, right, and um, the the, the f- public findings that come out of that um, those studies that, that you know over thirty five percent of adult men are engaging in homosexual activity, that presents a really troubling conclusion to the writers and editors of these magazines. So you, in fact, have a um, a true war. Um, magazine from September of 1957 and, and on the cover emblazoned in yellow is how homosexuals ruined Hitler's air force. Um, so there's an idea here that, that, um, that if you're not a straight white, strong man, that not only are you, um, uh, susceptible to being domesticated and emasculated at home, but you're also going to undermine the, um, the fighting effectiveness of the of the American combat forces during a time period where um, we're in a um, an existential war against the communists, um, and yet, like you said, there's 
different readers are reading these magazines in a different way. I, I watched the documentary as I was doing research um, um, on George Takai, um, Sulu from Star Trek, and he, he mentioned growing up as a young Asian gay man um, in the cold, early Cold War era, that these magazines were a great way for him to kind of look at, you know, bodybuilding magazines, a great way for him to kind of explore his own sexuality without outing himself. Um, and what I found really fascinating, as, as these magazines are talking about um, homosexuals being sexually, mentally sick, or, you know, mentally sick people, that um, they're also in the back pr- um, promoting ads um, uh, from photographers like Lon of New York and um, Bruce of L.A. That, that ended up being some of the, the first um, homoerotic photographers in, in the United States. Um, so it's really fascinating that, you know, the magazine articles are talking about homosexuality as a mental illness. And yet in the back of the magazines, you could buy you know, photographs of, um, uh, of gay men. And, and, um, so it's really fascinating to me how two things are going on simultaneously inside the covers of these magazines. Right. And so we have all these sort of things, issues happening and going on in these magazines. And then you move into, which I thought was really interesting, this movement for like, because of these pulp magazines, what it does with, um, children who are watching their parents um, who were in World War II or were in Korea and were weird reading these magazines and then they move into going to Vietnam themselves as young men or as adults. And so can you talk a little bit about that too, what you found with um, how World War II and Korea and how they're presented in these pulps impacted what happened in Vietnam and, and young men going to Vietnam? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what these magazines do is really help set the foundation for what will become the, the greatest generation narrative. Um, that um, if you believe that men in the Cold War era and, and masculinity in the Cold War era is, is fragile compared to, um, to the threat of domestication and, and the threat of um, uh, basically American women, that these magazines are an antidote to that, and and the way to get at um, uh, to get at younger readers is to emulate their World War II and Korean War fathers. And so, what I found here is that these magazines are really engaging in a process of of militarizing definitions of manhood, and that's not always the case in other. Um, areas of the Cold War culture. Amy Rutenberg has written a wonderful book, Rough Draft, on this and, and you know, suggested, rightfully so, that there's multiple constructions of masculinity. And not everybody is seduced by you know, the military as this, the singular path toward manhood. But within these magazines, um, the military is, in fact, the, the best path to achieve um, your manhood. And so World War II is really the best place to showcase that and and seduce younger readers, I think, with um, an opportunity to to learn about war as as this man-making experience. And you've got some pretty um, well-respected military historians at the time that are writing in these magazines, uh, Richard Tegraskis, Robert Leckie, S.L.A. Marshall, Norman Mailer. Um, And so, you know, these are not kind of just throwaway uh, pop culture 
um, lowbrow art, as, as some have described it. I mean, you've got some serious authors here that are writing about um, World War II, both fiction and nonfiction. And, and yet the, the narratives are just so simple in their construction. It, it's absolutely a good versus evil, and um, it's a sanitized version of war. And, and here the, it's, you see the good war narrative really flourishing, right? And, and as I argue in the book, I, you really kind of see the prototype of, of future action heroes. This is, these are Cold War Rambos uh, before Rambo ever gets to Vietnam. And, um, and I think the other thing that's really important with these magazines is that there's a sense that war is, is meritocratic, right? That anybody can be a hero. Um, so even if you're, you're frail and, and skinny or, or young, uh, inexperienced, um, you can still have the opportunity to become a man through war. And so a m- number of these World War II articles will, will kind of talk about just some young um, kid from you know, either the city or, or rural America, um, who is an average high schooler, and then all of a sudden goes off to the Pacific or European theater in World War II and becomes a hero. And so, um, you know, here, I think it's a way for the, the Cold War or the men's adventure magazines during the Cold War to, to illustrate um, all that is good in World War II and and what is good in World War II is the heroes that fought in that conflict. Right. And and you also talk about this idea, too, that in, you sort of brought it up here, but I'd like, love for you to talk about a little more this individualism, this idea that death is clean and easy. And we are uh, these magazines present this way that it's that we don't look at sort of the bloody cost of death, but instead these sort of triumphs of the individual. Yeah, absolutely. There, only very rarely do these stories kind of share the the harsher realities of war. Um, you, you see it more often in Korea, uh, the stories on the Korean War, than you do World War II. Um, you know, you'll have uh, as an example a Real Men article from January of 1957, and it it, um, it talks about how. American soldiers are literally fighting the communists with their fists and these kids that are bleeding from ugly wounds. But, but that's a rarity. Um, there's um, far more of these magazines are kind of focusing on, on the heroic individual. Um, and again, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's an antidote to this Cold War emasculation. And, and then I think an opportunity also to to demonstrate that here's a, here's a way to say, look, I was somebody uh, in, in this massive global war of World War II, modern industrial mass warfare. These stories tell their readers about veterans that I was somebody. And, um, and I think that's a, an appealing theme for young readers as, as much as it was for veterans. Right. And, and you move in, right, like, so this idea that war, uh, throughout your book, you have this, you know, the power that war brings, right? And the, the that war is all about power. And so you really focus in uh, your third chapter on that power over women and, right, the quote unquote savage woman. Uh, like the, I think it is a couple pages into that chapter, the, the ad where we have the, um, 
pistol on top, right? The 45 right. on top. Right. And then on the bottom, you can purchase a girl's head on literally on a, on a plaque that you can hang on your, right? The stuffed girl's head. Yeah. yeah. Which... It, like that, the juxtaposition of the just it's the just girls frightening. Have, it's the absolutely frightening. I was just like, right. oh my goodness! I, you know, like I, yeah. So, can you talk a bit about that? That looks sort of like the savage women, how like the conquering and the power over women sort of perpetuates throughout these texts. Yeah, um, yeah. That, so it's that ad is a. Uh, it's just frightening. Um, I, I was like, my oh, daughter. Yeah, my daughter's who, my daughter who is in her early twenties. I, I I showed that to her. <laughs> she was like, "Oh my God, how are you working on this stuff?" <laughs> um, but here, I think there's, as I mentioned earlier, there's kind of multiple constructions of women going on here, um, and one of those constructions I think is that um, women are seductresses, um, and those seductresses are, are usually um, in, in these Cold War stories are ex-Nazis or, or communist man-eaters. Um, but w- once the stories kind of go overseas, um, in the right locales, women can be seen as sexually available. And, and no better place is that illustrated than um, in the, the exotic Orient. And this perceived um, notion that, that all Asian women are are sexually available. Um, so you have magazines that are, are suggesting um, in the worst possible terms and here from mail of November of 1957, that um, an argument that there's no topping the Japanese prostitute because she's able to fall in love with every man she meets. And so I, I think that level of misogyny and sexism is um, is part and parcel of these magazines. And, and my sense is that not all that out of step with larger Cold War culture. Um, and again, I, I think why it's so important to study these magazines, that they're not um, kind of a, a lowbrow offshoot that, that is just kind of trashy pop culture. That I, I think much of this, uh, much of these themes are, are part and parcel of, of Cold War culture and these sexist attitudes um, toward really all women of what the magazines called darker races um, who at every turn appear to be sexually available um, is, is really um, an important part of the storyline here. So if you are that heroic warrior going overseas, the expectation is that women will be available for you and should be available for you. And, and war is a wonderful place to, to mix, um, you know, combat with sex according to these magazines. Right. And, um, and none of these women were named. They're just sort of props throughout these. Absolutely. Right. Um, you know, the, you may get um, occasionally a, a name of a, a local woman, whether it's in Polynesia or Japan or, um, you know, some tropical island. But, but for the most part, um, that's exactly right. They're, they're, they're voiceless. They're nameless. Um, and they're just there to, to serve as um, an object of either control or reward for um, for your heroic warrior. Right. And it's, I keep bringing up the images, but you have throughout this book, there's these wonderful images right in this chapter. Well, one, I, I really want to go to the sex school for spies. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I was like, that's amazing. But just in looking at how they're presented, right, a lot of images with these women as sort of, I'm looking at one right now, the sex mad harlots who fought with Hitler, right? And we've right. got the big swastika behind um, or, you know, so just how women are portrayed in these sort of positions. Uh, but none of these women are, you know, names or, you know, these buxom women scantily clad that are spies or aces or doing, doing whatever they're doing in war with no clothes on. Right. Um, yeah, it's always convenient, right, that the, the women on the battlefield are, are either in bikinis or, or their shirts or you know, their blouses are unbuttoned. Um, um, and I think what this suggests too, right, is that, that women are, um, as you mentioned, the inside a sex school for spies, that, that not only are communist women um, using sex as a weapon, their very bodies are weapons, um, which will come to fruition, obviously, later in Vietnam as well, and, and will come into to play even in more popular um, conceptions of women. Think of the female sniper at the end of Full Metal Jacket as one example. Um, but this article on Inside a Sex School for Spies you know, talks about um, the use of sex as a weapon, and, and the article actually calls it sexological warfare, um, and that women's bodies can be as destructive a force as a nuclear bomb. And so, um, again, I, I think the fact that these women can use their bodies to deceive and, um, and to um, really destroy men is, I think, symbolic of these larger male anxieties that you see during the Cold War. Right. And so you sort of present us with sort of what's happening in these pulp magazines and what's going on and the importance of them, right? And then um, juxtapose that in your later two chapters with what is actually happening and right that reality that is actually occurring in Vietnam. Right. And so, yeah. So can you talk a bit about that, like you chapter four, the Vietnamese reality, but like how this then is how these magazines then just translate into the the actual experience in Vietnam? Uh, not well at all. <laughs> right. Um, that's the short answer. But I, I, you know, I think your, um, your point on the, the illustrations is really important here. And I was so glad that Cambridge uh, University Press allowed, allowed me to have as many illustrations as I did, uh, because I think you can't understand the, the enticing aspects of this, these magazines without looking at the artwork and the artwork is, um, you know, as, as sexist as it is, it, it's incredibly well done. I mean, these are really, really talented artists um, that really kind of draw in your readers. Um, many of them will go on. Earl Norman, as an example, will go on um, become an incredibly famous uh, artist for uh, Marvel Comics. Uh, Mark Kunstler um, um, will, will go on and, and have an incredibly successful, successful career um, as a Civil War artist. Um, and so th these are really talented artists that kind of um, help the readers understand what war might be like. Unfortunately, the reality just was so far afield for how it was presented in these magazines um, to the point where my sense is what you see in the magazines is fantasy compared to the reality of Vietnam. And so what I think this does is really set up a... Um, uh, 
a level of frustration that um, has consequences in the relationships between American soldiers and, and the Vietnamese population that what is presented in the magazine is, is clean war, as you mentioned, it's sanitized, it's heroic. Um, and Vietnam is not like that. There, there are no set piece battles. There, there are long frustrating marches and there's no trophy at the end of these marches. Um, there's no triumphal rhetoric. Um, and I, I think this has got to be so incredibly disconcerting for soldiers that are reading these magazines and growing up that with a belief that war is going to be this man-making experience. And then when you get to Vietnam, it's just awful. It's, it's so disorienting. It's so frustrating. It, it's nearly incomprehensible. If you think about what you're brought up with in, in the magazines and, and what you're seeing in reality. And I, I think it helps explain why a movie like um, John Wayne's The Green Berets is really provoking ridicule from soldiers in the field rather than admiration by the time it comes out in you know, 1967. Um, right. Like you talk about, and not that, not that in our history of um, wars that America has been part of, they're very sort of clean origins, but you also talk about how these do not address the real complexity of how and why Americans became involved in right. Vietnam as well. Yeah, and, and I, I think the, um, and this is not to blame the, um, the artists nor the, the, um, uh, the writers themselves. I, I think just as many American journalists um, are struggling with how to um, perceive this conflict, how to relate it to the American public, the, um, the writers and artists of these magazines, which are mostly based in New York, are equally trying to struggle um, the complexities of this war that are, are just as much political as they are military. And, and so because there's no real frame of reference for these authors and artists, my sense is what happened is, happens is they kind of dust off the, the World War II narratives that have been a mainstay of the pulps for so long and just repurpose those for Vietnam. And, um, and why you have... Um, you know, really solid journalists that are also writing for um, magazines. Uh, Malcolm Brown is an award-winning journalist who's writing for a number of articles in True Magazine. Um, they're, they're all just struggling with trying to make sense of this war, um, just, as, just as American soldiers are. Um, and so I think the best way to deal with this is to kind of focus back on those World War II narratives, focus on strong leaders. You have a number of articles focusing on um, George S. Patton's um, son, who's a commander in the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, on, on Hal Moore, we'll later write um, with Joe Galloway, the book We Were Soldiers Once and Young, a number of stories focusing on um, Medal of Honor recipients as a way to kind of link that World War II generation to this really complicated and, um, and disorienting war in Southeast Asia. Another thing, like, and you talked about sort of people trying to make sense of this that I thought was really interesting is just how these, um, what was chosen to be sent to the um, the PX and what was chosen for GIs to sort of read, like they were consuming, you, you talk about consuming a great deal of 
literature and a great deal of text, but it's really interesting how these got chosen and brought over for them to read. Right. And um, a lot of it is, is done um, um, just based on sales. So um, these magazines were regularly, uh, regularly appearing on the, the top sales list in the post exchange system in Vietnam. Um, and when you kind of look at the, 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 the data, the circulation data, um, every month they're within the, you know, they're holding the, the top 10, 12 of, of the top 20 magazines that are being sold in Vietnam. Um, and so that to me was really telling, right? That you could see some of the linkages then between what the magazines were portraying both before and during the war. And I, I, I think what you also see then in, in some of the narratives, even in um, uh, um, uh, the court martial cases um, that are focusing on, um, you know, sexual assault in Vietnam. And you mentioned that be, even before, right? There's this idea that the Viet Congs are guerrillas, even before we encounter or soldiers encounter the Viet Cong, right? So they're getting these mm-hmm. images and these ideas from these magazines about their quote unquote enemy before they even have that interaction. Yeah, absolutely. And and they're all part and parcel of the larger narrative that the godless communists are evil. Um, you know, the, the, the um, magazine titles are, are just phenomenal, right? That the naked terror of the Viet Cong butchers and the cult, the kill crazy Cong um, who are ruthlessly plundering the countryside. So, right, if, if you're reading these magazines en route to Vietnam, uh, you clearly have a, a bias toward your enemy uh, before, you, before you even get there, um, which is, I think was fascinating too, because... Um, the magazines also will, will follow on many of the cliches that, that will remain, or, and I think continue to remain in American-centric historiography, right? That, um, that the, the enemy communists, the enemy Vietnamese, are actually overall compared better to the South Vietnamese soldiers. Um, comparing the South Vietnamese soldiers to jumping like scared rabbits, where as the the Viet Cong, although they're butchers, are um, able to outwalk and outcrawl any Western fighting man. So these constructions of the enemy um, and friendly Vietnamese, I think, are really important in, in setting up expectations for American soldiers as they're going to Vietnam. And in addition, really pushing uh, against the anti-war movement and using the language, right, that anti, like feminizing the feminization right. of the anti-war movement as well. And what that sort of says um, and creates that dichotomy as well with this, like, if you're not with us, then you're this sort of long haired feminine hippie. Um, I think at one and, point and- you, you mentioned like, well, Muhammad Ali, does Muhammad Ali fit in? category yeah absolutely yeah i don't know if i'd want to go back and and call call muhammad ali Um, but but absolutely and and equating the anti-war movement men in the anti-war movement with homosexuality right that that strong straight men go off to war while these soft um 
feminized homosexual men stay back. And, and obviously there's an anti-intellectual component to this where it's these hippie college kids who don't love America. Um, now, this narrative gets harder to sustain, I think, as, as the war goes on and, and becomes stalemated and, and ultimately um, uh, U.S. forces start to withdraw. It's harder and harder for that narrative to, um, to be sustained. But absolutely. The, um, and again, I think this fits a larger narrative when you listen to um, some of the oral histories of men in the anti-war movement in the mid to late 1960s and being called as, as one um, uh, one anti-war protester said, you know, I, I heard the, the word communist thrown at me as much as I did faggot. And, and this kind of um, hashing together of anti-communism with, um, with um, diatribes against homosexuality, I think was absolutely real, uh, both in the anti-war movement and those that were kind of pushing back against the anti-war movement, but were, were certainly a, a central component of, of how the pulps saw the anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. And in your final sort of chapter, you end with what, and you've sort of bringing together a lot of how women are looked at, how women are talked about to really focus on um, the violence against women, right? The sexual violence, the assault, um, and how that is portrayed and what happens in Vietnam. So can you talk a bit about um, that that sexual violence in Vietnam and in the pulps versus sort of some of what was actually going on or not going on? Right. Yeah, this was, I think, the, the, the most challenging portion of the, of the book to, to pull together because I, I, I wanted to be careful. It's clear that sexual violence happened in Vietnam. It's, it's not all that clear um, how much. Uh, I, I don't know if we'll ever come to a, a conclusion of, of how prevalent uh, American sexual assault and um, harassment assault and, and ultimately rape um, occurred in Vietnam. And, but I did want to ask how much these magazines potentially contributed to sexual violence. And I, I don't think there was ever a straight line that if you read the magazines then you went to Vietnam and, and looked to, to sexually assault or, or rape um, a Vietnamese woman. But w- what I think happened here is that what these magazines did was, was open up what I call a, a rhetorical space and what I mean by that is that, you know, if you're, if you're reading these magazines and consuming them, you're then thinking about war as being a part of sexual or sexual conquest being a part of war. And that all Oriental women in the conception of these magazines are seen as opportunities for sex, for, for proving your manhood, for demonstrating power over the savage other, as you, as you mentioned earlier. And I think the problem is, is that relatively few Vietnamese women actually act according to these male fantasies. So now not only are you frustrated because war is not the man-making experience you were told it was, but you're also now frustrated because Vietnamese women are not acting according to your fantasies, that, um, that they're not the erotic seductresses of, of, of Paul Pollution. And so to me, my sense is that that frustration kind of bears out um, in hostility to the, to the population. And so if you, if you can't find power over the enemy because, um, because there is no you know, 
conventional battlefield to, to clearly demonstrate your strength over, uh, over the Viet Cong or, um, or the North Vietnamese armed forces. Can you then take that frustration and retaliate against women? And I think that's what happened. That um, again, we need to be really careful here about causality because um, I, I think this is—it's really complicated. Um, but I do think that 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 men that were reading these magazines and that were that were um, taken in by its message didn't see that they were going to Vietnam to engage in sex. They were going there to conquer prey. Um, and in this, in many sense, I, I think when you did see sexual assault and rape, it was a way of men kind of not only acting out their frustrations, but, but acting out of revenge. Um, clearly there's, there's peer pressure. So some men are, um, um, both in the, the court martial proceedings that I read, um, were, um, discussing how they were afraid of being labeled a homosexual, um, so they performed uh, these act, these awful acts out of peer pressure, um, and, and which I just think is fascinating too, right? In a, in a just an absolutely awful kind of way. Um, some of the this was I think the hardest part of me doing the research as well as it was just kind of stomach turning to read some of the court martial proceedings that are in the war crime files um, at the National Archives in College Park. Um, but, but what I did find was that a lot of language in, in those court martial proceedings was not too far afield from what you saw in, um, in the men's adventure magazines. Um, and so this attempt to exhibit your sexual power over Vietnamese women, um, I, I think turned into some of the, the most horrific crimes that American soldiers committed while they were there. Right. One of the things you talk about is that idea, right, the, the capitalism, the consumerism, the sex, but also the power that these magazines really push forward um, mm-hmm. and that they really encourage these ideas of sexual superiority, cultural and racial superiority in these fantasies that really do um, whether that forgive is probably not the right word I want, but you you know, but, but they, in some ways that, that I don't know how to, uh, I'm struggling with the best way to phrase this. Right. But you see this, if you're seeing this and you're reading this, there are certain ideas that if you're not really sure, should I do this? Should I not do it? Um, In some ways, the language and the discussion of what it means to be a man and a man in war allows it. It gives you almost implicit permission yeah. to do that, right? Um, and, so, and so when you read some of the um, kind of the, the military history aspects of, of rape in, in combat, you see some arguments that, you know, this pressure cooker of combat is, is the reason for, for instance, of rape and, you know, a, a way for men to, to satiate their, their sexual desires in this incredibly stressful wartime environment. But I, I, I think that that misses something. Um, and, and I think it's kind of what you're getting at, right? Is that the, the perpetrators of these awful acts, how do they see themselves? How do they understand themselves and their actions? And my sense is that the, those understandings are imparted to them long before they join the armed forces. And so 
to me, it, it's so important then to kind of examine how these culturally produced representations of sex and violence are, are shaping behavior um, before Americans even get to Vietnam. And, and, and again, we need to be really careful with the causal, causal links here, but I, I think there is a cultural component here that leaves behind certain norms that not only open up rhetorical space to um, for readers of these magazines, but then when they're presented with these opportunities um, or create opportunities, um, that it's seen as acceptable because that was their understanding of what war um, offered long before they even got to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Right. And even the ma- women in um, combat, right, are placed in combat to cr- become a distraction, right, to create this space where um, they're going to find out those sort of the secrets of America. Or, uh, and so they're placed there in order, in juxtaposition to, right, they're not placed there really to fight, they're placed there to find out from right. you if you're not the, the whole dragon lady trope and cliche mm-hmm. of, um, you know, again, the deceiver using her sexuality to to get secrets from American soldiers or to, um, you know, to, to, to in fact kill them. Right. Um, um, yeah, absolutely. I think it's part and parcel of the story as well. Yeah. So basically it doesn't matter what a woman does. She just can't win. Like, no, I, I think in, in this environment, absolutely. Right. That, um, um, and, and the magazines will occasionally kind of push up against, um, you know, women just being passive victims that, you know, there, there are stories in these magazines of, of women being part of the, um, the liberation struggle in, inside South Vietnam and, and actually assuming some pretty critical roles in the revolutionary activity and, and even in combat. Um, and yet the stories are still kind of laden with these gendered cliches, um, even as women are not just victims of war, they're, they're still, um, the magazines almost can't escape themselves um, or, you know, move away from their, their, um, their historic arguments of, of what women are like, even in a wartime environment. Um, right. Yeah. Right. And, and so you sort of end with looking at the, um, how, veterans sort of remember their war and, and a bit about also what starts happening with um, men's magazines and war magazines. So you talk about um, different sort of texts that come out in the seventies, right? So can you just talk, can you maybe like sort of talk about that wrap up that um, sort of what you saw yeah. beyond this? And Yeah. So it's pretty clear that the, the these magazines kind of fade in popularity um, by the late, 1960s and early 1970s. And I think in, in part, we shouldn't be surprised by that, right? That, that the American experience in Vietnam really um, undermines the, the popular understanding of what war is. And, you know, um, veterans are returning not as heroes, but um, at least in popular understanding for quite some time um, as broken veterans. Um you know, they're, they're not seen as, as just and moral warriors. They're, they're seen, especially in the aftermath of instances like at Mi Lai as, as killers. Um, and so the, the war kind of complicates these questions over, over who is good and evil. And, and so 
along with the rest of American society, I think the magazines kind of retreat back from the glorification of war. And, and in a sense, they really kind of make this transition um, um, to, you know, what's known as the skin market, right? They, they kind of just move away from men's adventure magazines to, you know, a penthouse type of magazine or a swank magazine and just focusing more um, explicitly on, on sex rather than the combination of war and sex. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think it, it, it does tell us something about, um, uh, about what Vietnam does to our popular understanding of, of, of war as a man-making experience. Although, you know, that, that plot line, um, comes back pretty, pretty quickly, um, and pretty aggressively in the 1980s when you look at Sylvester Stallone's Rambo and. Chuck Norris's uh, missing action films that are kind of this muscularized redemption films. Um, and so, you know, we, we kind of come back to this not too long after, um, uh, after the fall of Saigon in 1975. We give it a little break and then we come right back. That's right. Uh, so we've been talking a while about your book. Um, so do you, are you working on anything new? Usually my like last question is um, like, are you working on anything new or anything with this book that you sort of want to promote and put out there? No, 2020 is the, it was the <laughs> year that I was going to finish this book and go traveling and take a break. So um, that's worked out really well. Um, no, um, uh, I mean, having made the, the recent transition to, to San Diego State University and, and kind of um, creating a, a new center for Warren Society there, um, it's, it's been uh, most of my effort has been um, kind of starting a new um, new position at SDSU and um, getting everything um, together in terms of building what hopefully will be a, a national center for the study of Warren Society and where we can kind of continue to look at these relationships between um, between popular culture and, um, and visions and understandings of what war does. And, um, and I think ultimately, um, how popular narratives contribute to, um, um, to things like violence and, and, um, sexual assault and harassment in times of war and, and contribute to our, um, potentially misunderstandings of, of war as a, as a man-making experience. And so I, to me, these types of studies looking at the relationships between um, American and global societies and, and war, I think, is really, really important because um, because narratives matter and how we remember war matters. And and they tell us something about why we want to remember war in certain ways. And, and I think that's really important. Um, and I, I would argue, argue, argue still something that's incredibly relevant today. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. I can. I completely agree, more than completely, um, and that narratives and remembering matter. Um, well, it was really wonderful talking to you. Again, this was yeah, great. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Yeah, it was Greg Dennis who wrote um, Pulp Vietnam, War and Gender in Cold War Men's Adventure Magazines. Uh, thanks for talking with me on New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thanks, Rebecca. Be well. <laughs>